Well, I'll have to remember to try to remove this background noise later. Why is there a horse in your house, Danielle? <laughs> Yay! <laughs> the last kill one in the end. <laughs> Definitely have to include Danielle's horse noise. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Spook Retorts. It's so spooky. Well, I don't know if that's offensive or not. <laughs> what? What was wrong with that? You sound like you were auditioning to be the new Mario to replace Chris Pratt. No, I said it's so spooky. <laughs> okay, maybe I misheard. Uh, I did not go like Mario with it. I promise. <laughs> well, everyone, I'm Sam. I'm Danielle. She is not a, a spooky Mario. She is, in fact... I was not being spooky Mario. <laughs> my co-host here on this podcast, where we share our weird media finds with our friends who don't know what we're talking about. Hurrah! And Danielle, today we have a very spooky episode. Guess what it is? Part two of my worst nightmare. <laughs> More Hyperion. Weeks Why? and weeks of Hyperion. I don't know if we're going to drive away all our listeners with this book, but I'm trying. <laughs> I don't know. The first book did surprisingly well. Yeah, it was surprising. <laughs> Color me impressed. Well, let's see if we can fix that. So, Danielle, for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with Hyperion, why don't you summarize what we discussed the last time we did Hyperion and see if you can't make it spooky. Again, we're really stretching our spooky torch definition for this episode. But <laughs> this is the torture portion of the spooky torch. Yeah, this is torch. like the Eli Roth version of spooky torch. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. So the f- first episode, first part, uh, we were following a character that was not in the original book. Quick question, Just for Danielle. kicks and giggles. Do you remember the name no. of this book? Uh, Fall of Hyperion. Uh, you got the Fall of Hyperion. Very good. Yes. Just double checking. <laughs> yeah. Fall of Hyperion by the same guy who wrote Hyperion. Dan Simmons. <laughs> yeah. Dan Simmons. Right, so we're following a new guy. You know this new guy? Who is this? Anything about him? He is uh, Keats. I didn't come up with a better name than <laughs> Junior. Keats Junior. <laughs> he. I don't remember his actual name in the story. Joseph Severn. Uh, Oh, Joseph Severn, and he is an artist? Well, he is pretending to be an artist, like the original Joseph Severn. Right, who was like the doctor friend or something of of Keats in real life. John Keats, the poet. Yeah, but he's actually secretly Keats, because I'm pretty sure actually everybody in this book is secretly Keats. I would love it if like the big twist in this book was the, the human race is just slowly becoming Keats, like... It's like a like a, like a zombie horror movie, but instead of becoming zombies, everyone's starting to become Keats. Yes, that's exactly what's happening. And so, uh, Severn clear, Keats here. To be clear, he is a cybrid, a recreation, a persona retrieval project that was a combination of technology and human biology that recreated Keats's personality oh, and new body. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just being clear okay. that he's an actually John Keats travel to the future. <laughs> he is not. Uh, so he is taken in. He's allowed, like, primary access, top-level clearance to Mina Gladstone's, I don't know, Hyperion War Room. <laughs> I'm very impressed you remembered her name, for one. <laughs> 
Well, I guess we've said it like 40 times by now. I may not remember it next week. Do you remember why Mina Gladstone's interested in M. Keats or M. Severn, I guess we should call him, to distinguish him from the other Keats persona? Yeah, apparently he is able to kind of channel the other Keats, which was, uh, what's her face? <laughs> the detective? Oh, uh, you failed. Uh, so Bron, just, La- Bron Lamia. Bron Lamia. I was, so, I was so ready to be disappointed. <laughs> I got there. I got there. Bron Lamia, who also has a Keats inside of her, baby Keats and Keats Jr. <laughs> Daniel, we all have a Keats inside of us, right? Just look for the Keats within. <laughs> That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses want you to do. Find your inner Keats. Find your inner Keats. Well, she has found hers, uh, literally, physically, mentally. Is that what Nirvana <laughs> is? Inner Keats? How many religions can I bring into Keats now? <laughs> so Ron Lamia, uh, she, he's like channeling the other version of Keats, so he can he can kind of see what the uh, the seven pilgrims are up to. Well, what's, yeah, sans hat masking. <laughs> uh, yes, so this Keats is able to dream the experiences of the other Keats persona, which is in a Shran loop embedded in Bron Lamia's shoulder, head, neck, something. Yes. And, hmm, was there anything else that happened? I mean, <laughs> was there? there's a war going on. <laughs> yes. So there's a war going on between the ousters and the big mega corporation i don't know what they're called the hegemony the hegemony that's a really hard word still <laughs> uh, <laughs> with hegemony which is like all of the other i don't know organizations things Human. creatures in the, yeah in the other whatever the technocore i guess the technocore i guess isn't part of the oust isn't part of the hegemony well whatever it's irrelevant let's not get into it Right, so it's kind of all of them versus the Ousters who've lived in space all this time. There's like a war going on. They underestimate the amount of um, Ouster battleships by oh, a lot. <laughs> so to be clear, there is an invasion where the Ousters are trying to attack Hyperion, which the hegemony goaded them into. And they, even though they underestimated their ship count, they're pretty confident they can still kick their butts with the 20 or 40 ships they already have present there but they can't it's all a lie oh we're gonna find out a lot more about that in this episode danielle perfect and that's it right there was no actual plot in the first part of the book (laughs) (laughs) well remember we 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 see the pilgrims through the dreams of severn sure we don't remember what happened to hoyt oh was that actually this book Uh, i felt like another book (laughs) he's uh they end up at the time tombs right they're at the time the tombs. They get there, and they've been camping out there for a few days. Right, and Bronn sees Hoyt, like, I don't know, lightning attack? So there's a giant Music. sandstorm that comes up. Oh, that's right. A giant sand- sandstorm comes up. Sam storm comes up. Sam storm. That's what we're calling my Hyperion series. The Sam storm. <laughs> and Hoyt is, like, caught in it, and she sees him, and she goes after him. Uh, he, like, leaves the camp at, at, in the middle of the night and, and wanders yeah, right. off towards the t- jade tomb. For reasons unknown, right? Yep. And she follows her inner Keats to find him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then DJ Trick shows up. Yes. And there's a party. And does Hoyt enjoy this party? No, but DJ Shrike brought kittens. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Remember the stuff I made up. That's really nice. (laughs) No, he murderifies Hoyt. Yeah. Slices his throat wide open. uh, Yeah, I kind of remember that. Is Hoyt dead now? Oh, he makes a wish. 
Does he make a wish? He, no, he says, no, well, he I gets, don't. He, he's like, I want to make a wish. Doesn't he say, I want to make a wish? Because he's like, Bronn shows up, starts shooting at the tribe. He's like, no, he's supposed to grant a wish. Right. Which I had forgotten that the whole point was that they were going to go grant wishes. I know. Strike, right? Isn't that kind of a cute? Strike the wish grander. Isn't that kind of like a cute genie story amongst all this horror? <laughs> I don't know. And I, I guess then Hoyt dies? Did he actually die? We, we didn't know. That was the end of the part was when his throat slit and he collapsed. Oh, good. I'm glad I didn't forget that, too. Uh, there's also another part you missed, which is where uh, Severn was seduced and oh, then so interrogated. Oh, seduced by that lady yeah. who interrogates him. And then he, she has two really, like, stupid men working with her. And then they get – it gets all broken up by – is by Mina? Yeah, by, by commandos. Mina sends commandos to get them. You know, after enough time has passed that so they can know who these people are who are interrogating. Right. And they use the truth potion that had a dumb name. Truth, truth talk. talk. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. get him to talk. <laughs> and, you know, again, the whole point of that interrogation is that everyone's like, oh, what's happening? And he's like, I don't know, but it has something to do with the ultimate intelligence and the struggle between the Technocore AIs and the hegemony, which is humanity, because Technocore wants to kind of wipe out humanity, maybe? Because they want to build their, ultimate like, something better than themselves that's not going to take over themselves. Right. And they're like, we're done with humanity. We can wipe them out. And... There is a 90-whatever percent chance that they're going to wipe out humanity, except for one variable, which is Hyperion, which is the only thing that might save humanity from extinction at the hands of the mm-hmm. Technocore. And the Shrike. Yeah, the Shrike is part Plays of the Hyperion unknown. Got it. And that is what happened, everybody, in the first episode of the Shrike Shrikes Back. <laughs> the Shrike Shrikes Back? <laughs> The fall of Hyperion. No, 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 I really appreciate the extra effort you're putting into the Foley work, Daniel. You said I wasn't enthusiastic enough last time. <laughs> you were enthusiastic. You were just enthusiastic about being down on this book. Tell me what happens in part two of the fall of Hyperion, the Shrike Shrike's Oh, back. you're going to love part two, Danielle. I'm going to tell you right now, Danielle, part two is going to be the end of part one of the book, which is at three parts. Excellent. <laughs> Move so, this along. <laughs> so figure that math out. <laughs> All right. So we open as Sol, Martin, and the Consul are meeting Kassad and Braun, who are carrying Hoyt's body. Hey, we're back with the main characters. Hey. Well, I mean, in this book, Severn's the main character. Yeah. <laughs> Kassad had slapped a med pack onto... Hoyt's body to sort of keep him alive and like sutured his neck together, but it's pretty clear that he is dying quickly, despite the best efforts of this future medical device. Oh no. Uh, so Braun says to the council, hey, why don't you call your ship here? We can use its medical facilities to maybe save Hoyt's life. And the council's like, yeah, it's probably too late for him. He's pretty much dead. But Braun insists, not wanting to leave Hoyt to the mercy of his cruciform parasites, like at least try to spare him resurrection at those things. Ooh. Uh, Martin Salinas also starts frantically like saying, yes, call the ship, call the ship, call the ship, because he is clearly going through withdrawal and wants some booze. And there's a bar on the ship. He has a drinking problem? Did you not know he was an alcoholic? No. When did you tell me that? Oh, so many times. Really? He's just <laughs> Martin Salinas. <laughs> the poet. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah, I knew that. Okay. I was thinking it was the guy that, well, I don't know if I knew he had, a, like, an actual drinking problem, but I didn't know he drank a lot. Uh, I was thinking it was the same. I don't, apparently still don't know the names. <laughs> <laughs> who do you think this was, I thought it was. I thought it was the guy who is addicted to the heroin. That's Hoyt. <laughs> I know, and then I realized as as I was thinking that, and you were getting mad at me that that was wrong. Well, because obviously Hoyt's in an dying. Un- yeah, he's not the one to be chanting "Get the ship." I know, but I thought it was him. I thought it was Martin for a minute. Okay, you know what, you guys? This book is really hard. Okay, <laughs> I know. And Maybe if you're so, reading it, that's what makes it so much fun. I think if I was reading it, it would be much easier. Uh, I, I do not think that is the case, Danielle. This book is is weirdly convoluted. It's great. I think it's hard to listen to it and then be surrounded by other technology and then, like, focus in on what you're saying. <laughs> what other technology are you surrounded by? You played on, like, I don't know, Candy Crush your phone? I definitely did not look – no, I definitely did not send a text while you were talking. Danielle, I have no sympathy for you if you're not going to pay attention. <laughs> like, oh, it's so hard to remember all these names. Let me just text while you're talking. That's on <laughs> to be you. To fair, those were names from the previous book. I should have remembered them. Yeah, you spent a good six weeks with them. <laughs> me telling you yeah, about it's them. Just, it's hard. It's hard, Sam. <laughs> I got two names already today. What more do you want from me? Uh, not texting while we're talking. Oh, I don't normally. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't realize this was a special instance. All right, continue on. Hoyt's dying. Martin's drinking. Martin, well, wants, Martin to wants to be, to be drinking. Uh, Saul briefly suggests waiting out the storm on the time tombs, but people are like, that seems spooky. Let's not do that. Uh, and then eventually they all can see that the ship would be a safer haven from the storm than any of the time tombs. And even Cassad agrees to call the ship. And so the council relents after stipulating that they won't leave the valley, just use the ship for shelter. Like, we, none of us can leave yet. We just have to get the ship and use its facilities. And they're like, sure, fine. Call the ship, and when it gets here, we'll all hike over there to it. Why would they leave? Leave leave Hyperion? Yeah, leave the time tombs, abandon the pilgrimage, all that stuff. So are they thinking about doing that? Is that an option? I mean, I don't think any of them are at the moment, but I'm sure some of them are like, I mean, Martin wouldn't mind just... Getting out of there, being like, I'm done with this. I don't need to do this. Yeah, why was he there in the first place? I mean, really. I guess he wanted to find the shrike. I think he wants to get his muse back. Yeah, it's hard to not have a muse. Poor little Martin. It's a good thing that I'm very amusing. No, Uh, uh, I don't think Martin cares. (laughs) No, he does not. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not an avatar of pain and death, so I cannot be his muse. So as they get ready to move out to where the ship will meet them, Kassad's perimeter alarm goes off. And he's like, stay here. I'm going out to investigate. I'll meet you at the ship. And Martin's like, that's a real classic horror movie move to separate the party. <laughs> We're not going to see him again. Everyone <laughs> else just told him to shut up. Uh, so the others wait for a bit for Kassad, watching the lightning and the sandstorm from inside a tent. But decide to press on without him, taking all their luggage, including Mastine's Mobius Cube, with them. Ooh, the Mobius Cube. Now, I mentioned the Mobius Cube because the book mentions the Mobius Cube. It does not come into play yet. Okay, but it's there. Just as a reminder, everybody, there there. is a Mobius Cube. In case it comes out and, you know, does something special in the next, you know, 400 pages. (laughs) (laughs) But you never know with Dan Simmons. (laughs) It's a precedent. It's there. He's not just pulling the cube out of his butt, which would be a good place to store a Mobius Cube, actually. That's irrelevant. (laughs) However, when they get to the rendezvous, the ship isn't there. Oh, that's Uh-oh. not good. The consul checks his 
Dude, Kassad leave. That'd be hilarious. Kassad just hijacked his ship. And <laughs> He's like, like, uh-uh. Peace out, guys. You're all going to be stuck there. And I'm going to be jetting around with, I, I found Moneta Monita, and we're all taking off for our honeymoon on Maui Covenant. Exactly. Peace out, time suckers. <laughs> I would love to see <laughs> Kassad and Monita Moneta have like a rom-com style you know, road trip thing going on. That'd be great. I wouldn't put it past this book. <laughs> well, there I did The Wizard of Oz, so maybe that's next. And to be fair, this whole book is very Wizard of Oz, with all these people going to meet this powerful unknown being and make wishes of them. The Shrike behind the curtain. Yeah, exactly. Eh? Eh? Hey, it's like a murdering version. I mean, that'd make that book better. And to be fair, if you read the other Oz books, they get pretty dark. Yeah, they do. <laughs> All right, uh, so the ship isn't there. The console checks his comm log and finds the ship wasn't allowed to leave the spaceport. Gladstone had it grounded. Uh-oh, that seems unfair. <laughs> and she sent a message to the console, a fat line squirt recorded by the ship. And if I recall correctly, wasn't it said that they couldn't communicate to the console? He could only send and not receive? Something like that. Well, we I guess that's not true. about how dumb it is. <laughs> yeah, we talk about how dumb is everything can communicate but not receive. Uh, that's just not true, though. I guess he can receive messages. He just chose not to. I don't know. <laughs> Plot device. So Gladstone tells them um, she couldn't allow them to have the ship because the temptation to leave would be too great and their mission is too important. So no that's ship for you. You're stuck there. Very pushy, Mina. Mina's like, I got bigger things to worry about than, you know, Hoyt. I have a civilization <laughs> of billions and billions to, to protect. Yeah, I guess. Like, their lives are inconsequential to Mina. Like, they are just there to complete their mission and maybe save humanity. She doesn't care if they live or die doing it. Which, to be fair, is not unreasonable in, in a sense from that perspective. I'm sure they would feel differently, but, you know, that's how all, you know, human sacrifices throughout humanity have worked. Kind of like the ends justify the means. Or, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few sort right. of thing. So, you know. Arguments for another day. We're not a philosophical podcast. Yeah, I'm not saying whether Mina's right or wrong. I'm just saying I understand her motivation. All right, so they're stuck on the island. Yeah, and just that... Oh, island? What? Hyperion Island! <laughs> Was a survivor? <laughs> Today on Hyperion Island, the Shrike team versus the Pilgrim team. Okay, this recap would be so much better, Sam, if you could just phrase it like you're doing an episode of Survivor on I'm Hyperion. I'm Jeff Probst, here on Hyperion Island. <laughs> so far, the Shrike, the unstoppable murder machine, has killed or one, maybe two of the pilgrims, and cause one of their daughters to age backwards in time. <laughs> but if they can find the hidden immunity idol in one of the temples in one of the time tombs, they won't get voted off the island. Woo! I would watch that show. I would watch that. <laughs> Telling you our listeners would come in droves. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really no competition. Just seeing how long they can survive before the Shrike picks them off. Because, like, who's going to defeat the Shrike in the physical challenge? He can control time. <laughs> or I say it can control time. Uh, sounds like a winner for a horror movie. It's literally unstoppable. What are they going to do? Like, oh, you got to do the balance beam test. It's like, what is this? <laughs> I can literally do anything I want. Anyway, uh, no, this is not Hyperion <laughs> Island. This island Hyperion. <laughs> this island of Hyperion. 
Uh, they're stranded in the Valley of the Time Tombs. And just How then... How is this not Hyperion Island? Valley of the Time Tombs. <laughs> it's like a Hidden Temple episode. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound like a Hidden Temple from Nickelodeon. We're just going all over to classic <laughs> competition or game shows. <laughs> it just feels very competition-y. Like, they're all racing towards this end result to make a wish. It's very much a survivor I, I, competition. I would say that, uh, actually, Valley of the Time Tombs feels more like an Edgar Rice Burroughs novel, like one of his Mars, his yes. Marsoon novels. Good call. Yeah. Good call. So. All right. Yeah. Sorry. Side checked. <laughs> Continue on. This is good, Danielle, because you're going to be, if you thought there was no plot in the last episode. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of setup and philosophy and background. And as you may recall, the first book, there was a lot of setup and background and philosophy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we're only in part two of four. So we're still in the setup phase. <laughs> <laughs> Three books later, we finally get to the plot. I'll be honest, Daniel. I'm not sure this book ever leaves the setup phase. This not this <laughs> whole series. <laughs> this is going to be amazing, everybody. <laughs> Stay so tuned. Good. I love it. <laughs> All right, so just then Hoyt's med pack like does the whole little beep, beep, beep thing and he goes oh, dead. Oh, no, not Hoyt. Yeah, he's, he's full on dead now. Not just mostly dead, not kind of dead, but dead, dead. Well, his life was hard anyway. Well, here's the Did problem. Did he really want to be alive? Well, Danielle. <laughs> oh, he's got the little cruciforms yeah. on him. Funny you should Is mention gonna that. Is he going to regrow? Is somebody going to take his cruciforms? Don't do it! So they start to speculate about how now two people are supposedly going to be resurrected in three days, because three days, of course, from Hoyt's body, which is supposed to be him and Father Paul Duray. Do they but, split? What are they going to do? Well, remember in the first book, when the one Bakura was given the... uh cruciform the other one it like did this whole process of like eating a whole bunch of food and getting really fat like gaining mass so it could divide into two no, slightly less than average size people which is what happened with that bakura so they're speculating uh is hoik gonna like this conservation of mass he's not big enough to support like two human beings are they getting like two half-sized people like one mini paul deray and one mini hoik running around <laughs> like they don't uh -huh. know what's gonna happen so they're like well i guess we'll find out in three days because we can't stop it at this point and they're just going to leave him there? They're going to take him with them? No, they're going to take them with them. Uh, and so then the storm starts sleeting in the desert, which, you know, why not? So they go back to Saul's plan of holding up in the Sphinx tomb, and they start making their way back down the valley towards the Sphinx. Okay. We cut to Severn, meeting with CEO Gladstone. Oh, yeah, Severn. He notices a map. <laughs> what? I forgot about Severn again. <laughs> <laughs> Every time. He's, He's only the narrative new. device of this book. We've had one episode, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Gosh, that's only been one episode. Feels like way more. <laughs> How am I supposed to remember this guy I've only talked about for like an hour and a half? <laughs> so they get to Sever and meet with CEO Gladstone. He notices a map of the Hyperion system showing the fleet positions and the Ouster Red is looking mighty threatening. He's like, well, that doesn't look very good. I'm not a space combat person, but that's bad news. Red is a danger zone. <laughs> Danger zone! Okay, we'll get copyrighted for that. Don't. <laughs> Very short, Sam. No logins. This is a logins-free zone. Logins-free <laughs> zone. Only Messina. <laughs> uh, so Gladstone asks to hear his dreams, but Severin is all petulant and like, I want to know why you abandoned them. He apparently is upset she left them there and guaranteed Hoyt would die, even though he was probably going to die anyway. That's because Keats Jr. is there. He doesn't care about that. He cares more about Hoyt. He likes Hoyt. 
He likes them all. He feels like we'll get to this later, but he says how he he feels responsible for them, like he's representing them because they have no voice of themselves. So he feels like parental. He's got like a view of from the top with all of them. He's like reading a book. Now he's involved in the characters. Yes, he's gotten way too close. He's he's let emotions take over. So that's why you never let your emotions get involved when you're undercover spying on somebody. Yeah, somebody should have told a poet that. (laughs) A poet artist (laughs) clone thing. Shockingly, he got his emotions involved. (laughs) It's a real mystery how that happened. (laughs) So Gladstone indulges him, telling Seven that each of the pilgrims is allowed to petition the Shrike for a favor, as is legend, and the Shrike grants one wish and kills the other, kills all the others. So far, so well established. But she is then all, do you know what Hoyt's wish was? Do you, Danielle? It wasn't to not have cruciforms, because that'd be my wish. (laughs) Well, that's what uh, Severn guesses, but she's like, no, his wish was to die. How does she know that? No idea. (laughs) Magic? What? It's like in his head. I guess she profiled him or something before he left. Okay, you can profile people all you want. It doesn't mean that you're going to know what they're going to want to wish for. Like, some stuff is obvious. Like, what's his face? Probably wants his daughter back. But, like, how would you know what he... What's his face? (laughs) Saul. Rachel and Saul. (laughs) I agree. It is BS, but apparently uh, she is at least saying that his wish was to die. Now, she could be lying. I don't know. But she's saying his wish is to die. And so the question is, did the Shrike grant him his wish? And are the other pilgrims now forfeit? What's going on here? But if he... Like die like eternal. I'm assuming he means eternally die. He does. Like die die. So I mean, wouldn't you know in three days? Well, we're gonna. I guess we'll find out <laughs> in three days, Danielle. Guess how many days this chapter, this whole section covers? It'll three hours. <laughs> Actually, not far off. <laughs> it's about a day. I think this is gonna be. Remember how they had like four days now, and I think it's been two days total since this book started because uh, that's when Rachel Rich was so, four days. I was say old. baby. Just say baby Rachel's got to be tiny now. Yeah, so I don't remember when Rachel reaches her birthday at the beginning or in the middle or the end of this book, but boy, it could very well be the end. Does she get like sucked back up into a vagina? <laughs> Damn. <Danielle. laughs> when she disappears. Where, the, no. where does that come from? <laughs> because she's re- like, she is de-aging. <laughs> she's de-aging. She's not like being sucked backwards through time, like <laughs> backwards mean, through her previous... Of. Actually, she has to like walk backwards or anything. Did she like? But you don't know what happens when she winks out. Did she get like sucked into Mother Earth? Or I mean, something? she might turn into like uh, a fetus and then just you know expire because fetuses cannot exist outside of utero. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but we'll get that's something to figure out in four days, Danielle. We right now okay. we're fine. Sorry, I didn't mean to jump ahead. So this four day story. <laughs> Yeah, right. So Severn is unmoved by all this wish talk. It's like you had an obligation to him, to all of them, to help them. And made a response that the pilgrimage is too important to even give them the option of escape at such a critical moment. So they verbally spar a bit more, Amina mentioning how much more convenient it would be to sedate Severn and then monitor his brain so they could have him dreaming all the time without this whole, like, having to go through him verbally. And he's like, well, if you did that, I would just leave my body and move my conscious to the techno core. So na 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 <laughs> I'm glad he has like come back for that because I feel like Mina would just do it. She absolutely probably would have if he didn't have the ability to <laughs> escape into the techno core. Mina is very much like, you know what? I gotta do what I gotta do and I have no moral qualms about it. Yep, yes. Then Mina mentions that if he'd like, he can visit Hyperion. Hunt, her attache, is far casting there for a short trip on business and Severn can tag along. Is that helpful? What if he dies or something while he goes there? Oh, Danielle. So they have this conversation. He's like, well... Why are you willing to risk 
this happen? She's like, well, it's not going to be a big risk. You're going to stay well behind the front lines and not take any risk. And you're probably going to come back. But also, Mina tells him that she values his observations as much as his connection to the pilgrims. And even if he might be reporting to the Technocore as well as her, she considers him possibly the least affiliated person in the web and that his observations are quote those of a trained poet a man whose genius i respect so isn't keats just the best (laughs) now i really appreciate that this book is pushing those liberal art degrees and like poetry and art and like all (laughs) in on keats like keats is the best his observations are the best his mental powers are the best keats is the tippy top of the totally cool tower well, and I don't think it's just pushing Keats. I think it's like the idea of like of art as a way to view the world differently. Well, there's an artist we'll come to later who is a roundly supposed to be, I think, a satire of art. So that's going to be fun. Perfect. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Um, also, of course, currently all travel to Hyperion is restricted due to, you know, the war. Uh, but millions of people still want to go to Hyperion to, like, view the spectacle because everyone in the core is, like, so jaded from having everything they want, their fingertips, as any sort of new stimulation is like, oh, we gotta go check out that thing. It's very sort of, you know, tail end of the Roman Empire, opulence and hedonism. Okay, I actually don't think that would be far from what we would do today. Oh, absolutely not. It also reminds me of... <laughs> Do you remember the giant robot punchy movie? Yeah, the one you did? Robot jocks, yeah. Robot jocks, yeah. And how they had the, the, the stands literally at the battle for the robot jocks. And that, like, right, yeah. that's how it would be. Yeah, it's not like, this is just, just it's all the same. It's, it's different properties, <laughs> same content of humanity. Humanity is humanity, no matter what property you're in. It's good to know. <laughs> right? We're consistent. Anyway... Uh, Severin agrees to go and immediately goes with Hunt to the Farcaster portal, which are described like Quicksilver on the surface. And apparently they used to have no sensation, at least rumored to have no sensation when you traveled through them. You just like step through them and it was just like stepping through nothing. But Mm -hmm. later versions, the AIs and the scientists who made them add like a little tickling, pringly, prickling sensation to make people feel like they actually traveled, which again, feels like something we'd do for people. I don't want to feel nothing while you travel. Anyway, my point is, I think this book has a very fun sort of perspective on humanity and gets a lot of things right. I don't think it's wrong, yeah. Anyway, so they far cast to the command ship in Hyperion and meet with Admiral Nishida, where Hunt gives him a secret envelope message, and they arrange for a transport for a brief trip down to the surface of Hyperion. Nishida is all very annoyed at playing tour guide and is like, just go and tell the, the CEO I'm not here to play babysitter or whatever. On the trip down, Severin contemplates how he'd been anxious about the trip to Hyperion because being there, he would be out of range of the data sphere. He would lose his connection. You remember the whole thing about the other Keats wanting yes. to come here? And they were afraid that um, if something, if he died or something, he couldn't transfer his consciousness Consciousness, he wouldn't be able to save himself. His body would be like a regular human being. He'd have one chance. This feels very risky on Mina's behalf. Well, but since the Defense Force arrived and set the Farcaster, the Data Sphere has slipped into the Hyperion system, however tenuously. So he's like, oh, even here, without any intention, just by bringing the Farcaster here to the Data Sphere and all the AI of the Technocore has made their tentacles come into Hyperion system. So that's just happened recently. Yeah, basically just as soon as the military set up their base there. Got it. They also happen to be landing in the capital city. You remember the capital city's name is of Hyperion? City Cap. The capital city. You're going to really <laughs> no. hate me when I tell you what this name is. <laughs> Main Street Capital. I don't know, Sam. Danielle, it's Keats. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course it's Keats. <laughs> is that the one that Martin was at, or is that a different no, one? No, City, of, city Poets. of Poet. But, so, oh, I got there. But guess who advised Sad King Billy to name the city Keats? Mm, the Strike. No, Martin. Of course Martin. <laughs> I was going to say Martin, but that seemed too obvious. <laughs> <laughs> so it must be a real head trip to be named Keats and landed in the city named Keats, which is named for you, but not really you, but the guy you're based on. Yeah, that'd be weird. Yeah, so... Anyway, I thought that was funny. the Shrike just wants to meet Keats? <laughs> the Shrike's like, oh, I'm, I'm a really big fan. I want to sign my <laughs> I want to sign my copy of his Hyperion's poem. Like, this mass murder is just him, like, barreling his way towards Keats. He just doesn't know how to do it. Uh, no, like, pro- he's trying to bring Keats to him. I think it's the other way around, and I think he knows exactly how to do it. He knows that the only way to get them to recreate the Keats personas and to send them to Hyperion would be to, like, follow this very specific course of seemingly nonsensical actions. I would love it if the whole plot of this book was just the strike trying to, like, meet Keats. Exactly. He's like, all right. He's like, we need a Keats. How does this happen? I have to establish this religion of the strike cult. I have to create this whole legend about wish granting. I got to the whole time to, that's a real pain in the butt, but then I got to go backwards through time. It makes a, I got to make this little girl, I got to age this girl backwards. All this stuff, and then eventually, they're going to send these seven pilgrims. One of them's going to have a Keats' persona inside of them, which is pretty cool. But I want to get a full <laughs> Keats there, so I want to get the other Keats persona. They'll get sent here, and then I'll finally get them to sign my copy. <laughs> like, double the Keats. <laughs> double the Keats, double your fun. <laughs> <laughs> I can only assume that's the plot of this book. Maybe the Shrike is just a huge Keats fanboy. That's a very big possibility. <laughs> I I'm like I don't, I would not take it outside of the realm of possibility is what I'm saying. <laughs> I believe it, Danielle. Oh, <laughs> uh, anyway, so a lot of the populace is camped out around the spaceport, expecting to be evacuated sometime soon. Womp womp. Oh, that's so <laughs> sad. <laughs> They're not gonna evacuate them. It's a lie. All lies. So as the dropship descends, the gentle rocking of the ship lulls Severin to sleep. Cut. Back to the time tune. It's now snowing as the pilgrims lug all their gear and the body of Hoyt into the Sphinx. Sol is worried about Rachel. Her birthday's in four days and he's desperate to find the Shrike, make a bargain with it, or just do something to save her. Aw, poor Saul. Poor Saul. His story's so sad. His story is by far the saddest, and he's by far the most likable person on this pilgrimage. He's probably gonna die. I mean, they're all gonna die eventually, Danielle. Is he gonna give up his baby in a, um, uh, what is it called? What's the word I'm looking for, Sam? Sacrifice? Yes! Is he gonna that sacrifice little really Rachel? That <laughs> was a, a mental image. It just wasn't helpful I for this. I thought you were talking about like an Isaac or Abrahamic sacrifice like that, but no, okay, yes. Uh, yeah, I that also came to mind, but I was just trying to simplify it, but I just couldn't get to the word sacrifice. I don't know, Danielle. I guess we'll find out. I, I really don't remember. I feel like the cover of this book suggests there might be a sacrifice. I mean, to be fair, the cover of this book also has a two-armed Shrike. We know that Shrike has four arms, so I wouldn't put too much stock <laughs> in the cover of this book. I know. I was looking at that. I was like, that's not how I imagine the Shrike. I know. He's supposed to be like, you know, eight feet tall, bristling with thorns, four arms, red, faceted eyes. He's like, oh, yeah. I'm just a guy in a metal suit. <laughs> I was mad about it. I didn't look very long because I didn't want to, like, give anything away in case there was something else on there. But I was just like, what the heck, man? <laughs> no. And even the cover of the first book has the Shrike watching the wind wagon. I'm like, he was never there just watching them traverse <laughs> the sea of grass. You don't know that. You don't know that. So I think there's very little that the cover is going to give away. Like, I think it's one of those things where, like, did the person read the book before they did the cover? <laughs> the answer is no. They just were described the yeah, Shrike and not as thoroughly as you did. Yeah. 
Fully they'd had our podcast. I think the next cover has a strike with forearms. So, you know, they got it right eventually. Somebody, yeah, somebody wrote in. They're like, dear publisher, what the heck? Get your act together. <laughs> um, so after they settle in, a tremendous noise wakes them all. They recognize as Sod's rightful. And they Did all, he ever come back? No. They, had, they haven't met in. up. No, sorry. That's just, it, was, it was very long. It felt long. <laughs> <laughs> it's mostly long because we've been talking about, you know, Survivor Hyperion <laughs> Island. I mean, a better story. <laughs> I don't know if it's a better story. It's certainly an entertaining one. <laughs> so they hear a rifle? So they hear a said? rifle and then they all cower in the Sphinx as explosions rend the night. Like a full-on war zone, it sounds like. Uh-oh. Cut to Severn waking up as they touch down at the spaceport at night. Mm-hmm. They're met by Theo Lane. Do you remember Theo Lane? Absolutely no, not. There's no reason you should remember him. <laughs> it's like that name doesn't ring a single bell. <laughs> he is the current governor general, and he was a friend of the console, if you recall. He was once like, hey, when they first touched down, he took them around and was like telling them about the situation. He's like, hey, could you be the governor again? He's like, nope, that's on you, Theo, and then went off to do the pilgrimage. Nope. Nope. <laughs> okay, well, he existed. We're going to move on. I believe you. They take a skimmer out through the city, and Severn has a bit of vertigo due to his weak connection to the data sphere. Uh, that makes a difference? Apparently. like it's not. Why it's would like, it make a difference? It's like a weak Wi-Fi signal. It's not as high bandwidth. I don't know, but apparently he feels like it feels different here. He's like fading in and out. I, Danielle, I have no more explanation. Like I'm not a cyber. Like a slowing? <laughs> I'm not a cyber. I cannot explain to you what... He makes this whole metaphor about the ocean and currents, and I, I didn't want to like go through it all because it's long and one of the multiple chapters. Just trust me. It's weaker. Okay. I believe you. I just think it's dumb. <laughs> I mean, doesn't your cell phone get weak slower when it's at a weaker signal? Yeah, but originally the other Keats was going to like come to Hyperion when they didn't have any connection. Would it yeah, be better if he didn't he, have any connection at all? Because he had already downloaded his entire consciousness into his body. So this is because he's sharing his consciousness. He's still, still part with of the, the Technocore. He's still. Okay, he's not I'll take it. Transferred You're his fine. entire You're consciousness. You're good. You're good. To his body. I'll, I got it. We'll move on. <laughs> you sure I can go over it again? Nope, nope, nope. You remember BB? His head exploded? Yes. Yes. All right. So Theo explains the situation. The populace of Hyperion, nearly all five million of them, have largely relocated to the three major cities, Keats, Port Romance, and Endymion. While many feared the Shrike coming for them, in fact, the only suspected Shrike killing so far have been all of the self-defense forces that went up to attack the Shrike. You remember that I think like a battalion of 3,000 self-defense forces up to try to you know, find the Shrike, and they were never seen again. And they're like, well, so yeah. Are, are we assuming that the Shrike is actually just like a peaceful, fun-loving guy, and he doesn't attack people unless they attack him first? I mean, I, th- I don't think we're assuming that. I think that assuming the Shrike is an indiscriminate killer is probably... Not correct. I think it is a very deliberate killer. Is he just an ouster? Because I feel like they're in very similar situations. I mean, again, Danielle, I do not remember how this fourth book ends. <laughs> Who is the Shrike? Is it an actual creature or just a man in a suit? What is this, the masked Shrike? <laughs> yes, it's been a, again, we've established that this is just a long episode of Scooby-Doo. That's <laughs> true. Sure, I forgot that. We had the Scooby Shrike. Oh, man. Would you kill for a Scooby snack? Why? <laughs> All right, so Theo then dissolved the self-defense force because he thought there were a bunch of thugs and they were causing more problems, not the actual force marines were there to keep order. He didn't need them. Mm-hmm. So now the people are fearing the ouster invasion because of all the stuff that happened at Brezia and are waiting for the supposed evacuation so they're not returning to their homes or anything, even though the threat of the strike has somewhat lessened in their minds. But there's still war. So the skimmer lands 
and they find themselves at Cicero's, apparently the only food establishment in the city, given how that's the only place anyone ever seems to go to eat. If you don't recall, Cicero's where the pilgrims ate when they were met by a Betek before heading out on the Benares. Is there pizza? How would I know? <laughs> it sounds Italian, Cicero's. Is that not Italian? <laughs> I don't know, Dale. They don't mention pizza. I haven't seen the menu. <laughs> so they settle in for a quick bite, having about only 45 minutes before they need to leave on the dropship to return to the command ship and get out of there. Hunt asks Theo's how he's holding up, and Theo says they can last for a few more weeks, but probably not much longer, given that supplies like food are growing scarce since there's no production anymore, since everyone's left the farms, the plantations, and has come to the cities. This is not good. Yeah. Theo also mentions they think the Shrike priests escaped the mob. Remember, they had destroyed the Shrike temple. Mm -hmm. And they escaped to keep Kronos, which Severin remembers was full of scenes of slaughter. So maybe the Shrike priests didn't really escape. Uh oh. The Lord of Pain. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're listening to the Lord of Pain, that's what do you expect? Like, you're worshiping the Shrike. You're like, hey, let me go meet the Shrike. And you meet the Shrike and get slaughtered. Like, you should not be surprised by that. <laughs> no. I'm sure they thought it was an honor. <laughs> like Klingons or something. Exactly. Anyway, Theo states his first priority is evacuation, to which Hunt is all like, nah, that's not happening. <laughs> Five million people is way too many. Gladstone doesn't have the political capital to to get to, to swing that. And Theo's like, well, more than twice the, that many people flood into Maui Covenant when it was hooked up to the web, and they destroyed that ecology, so surely we could do this. Hunt admits that there's also a security concern both from the Shrike and the possibility of ousters getting access to the web. Theo is all like, well, we will evacuate by ship then. You can fly us up, and then that's why you brought the whole fleet, right? The evacuation fleet. And Hunt's like, yeah, that was the reason we told people, but that really was just a battle fleet we disguised as an evacuation fleet. Sorry. Oh, so sad. But don't worry, we're totally here to protect Hyperion and bring it fully to the web. And the Shrike, don't worry about the Shrike. It'll be uh, neutralized. Uh-huh. And he gives space. no further explanation on how they're going to neutralize the magical Shrike. I just told you they're going to nuke it from space. That's not going to work, Danielle. It's a Shrike. <laughs> They're going to stab him from space. He control It controls time, Danielle. They're going to coax him with a box of kittens into one of those traps that like hangs him upside down in a tree. But he would just freeze time, take the box of kittens and leave the box and leave the, the trap empty. Danielle, time lord, lord of pain. Then he'd have kittens. <laughs> then he'd have kittens that he would probably put on his spikes so it wouldn't end well for them. <laughs> No, like, he would not. He's better than that, Like, Sam. imagine if a, if a porcupine fell into a box of packing peanuts. <laughs> he does not put his kittens on spikes. That's not right. Spooky darts. <laughs> That's horrifying. That's not what he does. That's not what he does, everybody. Ignore Sam. You don't know, Danielle. You never give him the right kittens. He just pets the kittens. He loves kittens. He pets them with his blade fingers? How awful. He rips the shreds. <laughs> no, he knows how to touch them without without destroying things. How do you think he eats or like goes to the bathroom? He's got it down, Sam. You think he eats or goes to the bathroom, Danielle? <laughs> I don't know Those his life. Those are some big assumptions for this magical being. <laughs> he could be a creature that needs sustenance that's not just sucking souls and blood. I don't think so. I think he's good with kittens. It's like <laughs> his one thing he's good at. <laughs> If you want to believe Besides that, Danielle, murder. I cannot endorse that viewpoint because I have no evidence to back it up. <laughs> you have no evidence that he puts his kittens on spikes either. I do have evidence he puts a lot of other things on spikes, so I don't know why he wouldn't put <laughs> kittens on kittens. spikes. kittens. <laughs> I'm just saying, empirically, he puts things on spikes. 
<laughs> They're pure. Do you think that matters the strike? <laughs> I do. Also, kittens are not pure. Cats are jerks. <laughs> but kittens don't know that they're jerks yet. <laughs> oh, okay. That makes the difference. Just saying. He probably has a whole like kitten orphanage where he just takes them all and raises them. That's what's really in the time tombs then. Kitten orphanages. <laughs> and they're coming backwards in time so they can share kittens with the world when it needs it most. I mean, I'd be okay with that. That'd be a fine <laughs> ending to me. It's no weirder than singing Wizard of Oz. Yeah, that's true. Well, hold on to that ending in your brain, Daniel, because it does not end that well. <laughs> okay. So as they're talking, Severn notices someone familiar. It's Emilio Arundes. Remember Emilio Arundes, Danielle? Absolutely. No. Of course you don't. <laughs> he is the one-time lover of Rachel. Oh, sure. Her her boyfriend, which was... Oh, uh, yeah, that guy that, like, dropped her like a hot potato because she started de-aging. Well, it didn't drop her like a hot potato. They tried to make it work, and then she broke up with him because she kept forgetting right, right, who he right. was. Understandably. I wasn't judging him. Go for it, guy. I wouldn't want to date somebody de-aging either, who eventually doesn't remember me. <laughs> yeah, and then she's a child at some point, and that's no good. <laughs> so... Everyone from the pre- Remember, Danielle, you kept telling me how these stories relevant to the, the plot? Yeah, apparently they were. Who yeah, knew? Yeah, they're gonna. They're all coming back, Danielle. Get ready. 800 pages later, they're relevant to the plot. Oh, I hope you remembered everything I told you. Plus uh-huh, more. Absolutely. Everything. Uh, so, uh, so Severin gets up to go talk to Emilio, introducing himself as a friend of Rachel's or more a friend of her father's. At this point, yes. He's like a full-grown adult now, right? Mila, he was a full-grown adult then, too. Well, yeah, but, like, he's older. Yes, or is he's, he still, like, 30? It's been, been, like, 20 years later. He's he's in his 60s now. Okay. Well, I mean, it's been 26 years, but web time and standard time, it's a right, lot right, of time right, right, right. So anyway, Emilio says that he's here to study the time tombs when they open. Like, they noticed they were opening and they're like, hey, we study the time tombs. Let's go and check it out. But he was denied access to them by the government. He was also hoping to find Saul, thinking that maybe they could learn something here to help Rachel from this new situation. Severn tells him he has intel that Saul and Rachel are at the time tombs, safely for the moment, but that's all he can tell them. Mila and his team are desperate to investigate the time tombs but have been threatened with prison if they try to go again since they try to sneak over there once got arrested like if you go back you're supposed to you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison well maybe they shouldn't get caught this time do they think about that yeah well they're being watched <laughs> and followed they're basically prisoners already in the city mm-hmm. and he says that the tombs could open at any time and without more data he can't be more specific it could be tomorrow it could be six months from now but sometime they're going to open and then he tries to explain what opening means to sever and he's like the tombs are coming into phase with the flow of time in our universe and that they are moving backwards in time Possibly from our future, but, quote, we're not even sure what future means in temporal physical terms. So, you know, it's all a big mystery. That's just so Dan Simmons could get away with anything. Um, So <laughs> yes. they could potentially tell you when the time tombs are going to, like, fully open meet. I think what their whatever. idea was, they can measure the anti-entropic fields and see, like, when they weaken. As they're weakening, they could probably plot, like, oh, they're weakening at a certain rate, which we can predict if it continues to weaken at this rate, it'll fully disappear by this time. Why wouldn't the government want to know that? They don't want anybody interfering with the pilgrims. No. Okay, but they don't... Oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I think both could simultaneously exist without... No, it would be another variable there that could affect the Shrike or the pilgrims. I suppose. Also, Melio still doesn't believe in the Shrike, which is hilarious given what happened to Rachel. <laughs> Like, and definitely Sever- not the shrike. Definitely another reason, everybody. <laughs> well, he thinks it's just the anti-entropic field. Like, she was just infected with them somehow. And the shrike isn't real, but the, the fields are. 
I mean, other than the Shrike killing a bunch of people, definitely not real. Well, rumors of the Shrike killing, but they've never actually seen the Shrike kill anybody, at least no one reputable. That's true. They could just be a manifestation of human pain. I mean, we never we don't know what happened to the 3,000 self-defense force troops. They could have all got killed up in the desert or in the sea of grass or whatever. Killed, killed each other. Yeah, exactly. We don't know, Danielle. Not the Shrike. We don't know. I, I want the Shrike to not exist. Hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know the Shrike exists. We've seen it interact multiple times with people. Have we? Could just be a figment of people's imaginations. I'm not going to engage in this nonsense. <laughs> we have so <laughs> okay. little time left. <laughs> Carry on. So then Severin asks Melio, hey, are you still in love with Rachel? And like, what? Bro. <laughs> it's awfully, awfully personal. <laughs> Like, well, not this version of Rachel, obviously. <laughs> Emilio's like, gets really upset for a second. And then like, he whips out this photo of his current wife and kid is all like, I have a wife and kid. Uh, and, by, and even so, if we cured Rachel, by the time Rachel grew up to the same age I knew her at, I'd be well over 80 years old. But yeah, I'm still in love with her. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't preclude. You can still love your past love that didn't work out without actually right, but I mean, like, like, being The implication is he's still in love with her, which is like, dude, oof, poor Emilio. Yeah, it's rough. I'm glad he moved on, mostly, kind of. other than that. Yeah. <laughs> the poor like, wife. <laughs> he moved on, but was like constantly burning a torch for Rachel and was here to try to save Rachel and like risking his life to come to Hyperion in a war zone just to, for Rachel leaving his wife and kid behind. Yeah, he's like, okay, wife and kids, I've got to go save this good lady that I used to know that I'm definitely not still in love with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that feels very like, well, oh, that's not kosher. <laughs> So then Hunt comes over and tells Severin it's time to go, and they ascend and return via Farcaster to the Senate Gallery this time, where uh, they conclude their 90-minute trip to Hyperion. That was fast. Just like a movie. Exactly. Only a lot less happened. (laughs) It's true. It would be a really boring movie. (laughs) (laughs) My dinner at at Cicero's with Melio. the third book. Oh, okay. So they enter the gallery just as Gladstone is wrapping up her speech, and as she finishes, there was a standing ovation from most, but not all of the senators. Uh-oh. There's oh, some no. opposition to her rule. Dissent in the ranks. Shocking. And there's opposition parties and stuff, too. So all that. Hunt then tells Severn he's invited to a fancy dinner that evening, but until then, he's free to go about his business. Do you know what his business is, Danielle? Um, Sex? No. Sleeping! Because <laughs> it's time to cut to Kassad, running across the valley floor. Sex would have been more interesting. I mean, would it? I mean, we've seen Kassad's sex life, and it was fine. <laughs> it got interesting at the end when she turned into the Shrike. That was pretty interesting. <laughs> Plot twist, she's a Shrike. <laughs> <laughs> uh, get, get your Shrike vaccine. You don't want to get that STD. No. <laughs> All right, so Kasada's running across the valley floor. A shot whizzes by his shoulder, one he thinks the mysterious sniper targeting him intentionally missed with. Ooh. He's being toyed with. He sprints for the cover of the jade tomb, catching a rifle bullet in the chest, which wins him, but his battle armor handles it, and he knows his opponent knew his armor would protect him. So again, he's being toyed with. I'm going to be honest. I keep forgetting that there's like a whole plot going on with the pilgrims. When I talk about the Pilgrims, you forget about Severin. When I talk about Severin, you forget about the Pilgrims. You can't keep both plots in your at the same time. Like, I'm trying to be in the moment, Sam. <laughs> I'm just really impressed you, that every time I'm like, surprised, oh, we have another plot. <laughs> it's how I don't remember anything later. Wouldn't it be less interesting if I actually remembered this as I went along? <laughs> no, I, I don't know. We'll never find out, I guess. 
So after ducking into the jade tomb, Kassad scans the valley, seeing the heat trail of the pilgrims who went to the Sphinx, but nothing else. He uses his fancy helmet computer to compare the trajectory of the shots that were fired. One came from the City of Poets, and the second, a few seconds later, had come from the Crystal Monolith, which is a kilometer away from the city. However, despite that, Kassad doesn't think there are two snipers. Ooh, it's Lady Shrike. Remember her name? I mean, sure, good enough. I'm not going to say anything. (laughs) Danielle drank her goofy juice today. (laughs) Monita? Monita or Moneta? Yeah, Monita Moneta. That's what we call her. Excellent. (laughs) I got there. (laughs) I know, but I did love your little trill at the end. I was hoping you'd like jump in and correct me, but you were, and it just trailed off. <laughs> I know. I'm going to see how far you went with that. Sometimes if I let you talk, you'll get to someplace really great. I'm like this in my everyday life, too, everybody. <laughs> it's, it's, this is not an act. <laughs> so Kassad peeks his head out and is blasted by a green laser from high on the crystal monolith. Again, his battle armor manages to absorb the blast, but is fairly well damaged. Is he Kassad losing percentages? Can he like see the little bar? No, there's like a lower? hole in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, it doesn't like report. We have thirty. It's like a video game where it's like you have lost eighteen hit points. <laughs> he has a magic helmet. I was just, I've just assumed maybe that would tell you like how much damage control you can take. That's fair. It probably has like readouts. I think he ignores them. <laughs> okay. See, wasn't that far fetched? Kassad briefly contemplates how precious and unique and priceless the time tombs are before thinking, ah, screw it, and Blech. just blasting the crap out of the monolith. <laughs> Good for him. He takes his combat laser out, combat rifle out, like blasting lasers, grenades, explosive rounds, whatever he can. He's like the full nine yards, the works. The place is soon a smoldering Swiss cheese of a structure. Suck it, monolith. <laughs> However, he's like he doesn't believe for a second he killed the sniper that he's fighting. No, of course not. It was just fun. Yeah. He's like, you know, it's like a weird foreplay, I think, for them. <laughs> <laughs> Is it Monita again? Monita Veneta? Well, he whispers Monita or Moneta and then dashes out of the jade tomb towards the monolith. He's not 100% sure on his name. It's not like they've talked a lot. <laughs> I mean, again, we don't know. So I'm going to assume that everyone in this book doesn't know. He's like, is it Monita or Monet? It was a long time. I can't remember. Monita, Monetta. He just changes it every Mary, time he talks to her because he can't uh, quite remember. Madeline, uh, oh, don't go away. I'm sorry. <laughs> Like a bad rom-com. He, as he's running across the desert floor towards the crystal monolith, he just gets blasted, taking several shots fired from the monolith of various different kinds of weapons, kill lasers, other stuff, and barely makes it to the monolith, his armor badly damaged. If she is trying to kill him, I'm not saying that's what she's trying to do, yeah. but if she is, like, she set so many opportunities. <laughs> oh, yeah. Again, she is toying with him. Like, if she wanted to kill him, we remember she could do the time fight with the ousers. She could freeze time and, you know, slit his throat. It would be or trivial. Or could have just killed him during sex 15,000 times. Day well, not that he didn't try. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so I don't really think that death is the goal. I think this is sort of be like, this is the war side of humanity he's representing. And there's like this weird psychosexual tension and war thing going on. Sure. Violence thing. So anyway, Kassad ignores all the calls from the other pilgrims on his common plant about like, hey, what's going on there? And he starts to climb a spiral staircase towards the 10th floor where a figure is waiting amidst the destruction. Manita Manita? Maybe. We don't find out because we cut to a fancy restaurant. It's called Treetops. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> 
Treetops. Treetops, Danielle. Guess where it's located? Uh, at the base of a mountain. <laughs> yes. How do you know? It was an ironic name. <laughs> I assumed it was named after, like, William Treetop. <laughs> William Treetop. No? You know, yes, everyone knows William Treetops, Danielle. The famous <laughs> William Treetop, the climber. But all his time atop trees, how he earned the name. No, it was, it was his father's name before him. I don't know. It was just... It's he Tops to be all chef. the way down. <laughs> Your father was a Tops. His father was a Tops. His father's father was a Tops. It's Tops all the way back, Tops. All right. So there are tree tops, I assume, it's, in a tree. It's unsurprisingly located amongst the branches on some of the massive trees of God's Grove. I mean, that'd be a pretty cool restaurant. Oh, it's a cool restaurant. It has multiple floors, and it's like a caste system because the higher floors are for fancier people. And so you get to segregate people. That it's really sounds great. fun. Yeah, I know. It's, the, Hyper- <laughs> uh, the hegemony is a great place, Danielle. It's not a the weird worst. cultural morass at all. They definitely don't all deserve to die. <laughs> Do they? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, Severin and Hunt arrive. Severin recognizes one socialite in particular milling about before dinner. It's Tyrena Wingreen Fief, Danielle. Of course it is. I should have guessed. Do you remember Tyrena Wingreen Fief? <laughs> it's the erstwhile editor slash publisher for Martin Salinas' books. Oh, the one he had sex with? No. Oh. That was his wife <laughs> who introduced him to Tyrena, who published his books, and then like demanded he start making smut books. Yeah, I vaguely remember that. I also yeah. just kind of conflated that entire story into one thing. That's fine. She's back. They're all, everyone's coming back is the point, Danielle. No character mentioned in the first book is not coming back. Yay! <laughs> trying to sound less excited. So he goes up to her and strikes up a conversation mentioning Martin Salinas. And Tyrina's all like surprised to hear Martin's name because they were just considering releasing some of Martin's work, his Hyperion Cantos, that they would never publish before because nobody wanted to buy it. But um, now everybody does. Well, he now just that needed he's, to wait for his time. Well, but now that he's dead, they're thinking about now the time to publish it because nothing drives up an artist's stock like it's death. Do they think Martin's dead? She's fairly convinced Martin is dead. But he's not. No, while Severin makes a pithy comment about making sure Martin is dead since the Cantos would make better reading if it were complete. And then they're all called the dinner. Oh. The dinner I hope is... they publish the incomplete kid. Do they have a copy of the incomplete Yeah, because he brought them like the manuscript and she's like, I'm not publishing this. That's right. But then he wrote more. Well, yes, but they don't know that. Okay. I mean, he, maybe he sent that off or something. I don't know. Remind me, does Martin have like this, all his pages with him? Oh, yes. That's, that's his luggage. He's just like, like Never. All his We went through the luggage and all the people and he brought his cantos. Yeah, I vaguely remembered. I was just confirming. Yeah, well, he, he's not even that thing behind Daniel. <laughs> I didn't think so either. I just didn't remember if he had an actual page still or if he transferred it to something or what. I mean, if he was smart, he would have digitized it, but we you know, it's Martin. <laughs> like, apparently not. <laughs> So the dinner is largely benign. It's mostly an excuse for more philosophical conversation about the nature of humanity. And I'll give you a little bit of it now. It's mostly attended by politicians of the elite, including Councilor Albedo, the representative from the AI Advisory Council. And at one point, an action artist sitting near Severin asks him what he thinks of the war. And Severin comments, war does not call for judgment, only survival. But the action artist is all, oh, oh no, war is the next great art form. All human endeavors must trend towards art if human consciousness is to evolve. And this guy sounds like a real drag at parties. Is the action artist, is like his job to draw action? No, his job is like, think of performance artist, but like he does actions instead. 
So like, uh, this is in the book, and I'm going to say this is uh, maybe triggering, so you might want to skip forward 30 seconds, but one of his art pieces is coordinating suicides across the uh, web and broadcasting them all live on the all thing. So, like, he does actual actions, not like mime actions. Right. <laughs> he is someone who coordinates art actions that he considers art like he he creates events that other people observe as art that's a choice he's making that's what i'm guessing i, I we get no actual definition of what an actual artist is i'm just guessing that based on one he's kind of a, a jackass and two he is uh describing what what the art pieces that they describe he does which is the one that i mentioned already okay <laughs> anyway he sounds like a real real jerk yeah is this the guy you were talking about earlier that was yeah. like a... This is the artist that said. is supposed to be a send-up of artists like him. Yes. There are multiple types of artists. It's true. Oh, for sure. At this point, Tyrena, also involved in the conversation, ropes in a priest, Monsignor Edouard. Now, do you remember Monsignor Edouard from the first book, Danielle? No. I'm asking this question a lot, Danielle. <laughs> and you know my answer is literally going to be no. I know. That's what makes every, the question fun to ask. every time. Like a lawyer, you never ask a question you don't know the answer to. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He was the one-time friend of Father Paul Duray. The one that was mentioned for like three seconds before Duray well, left? Well, the one that basically Paul Duray was writing his journal entries to. I mean, it quickly fades out of being journal entries. Yeah, it does. When the journal entries are over and it comes Hoyt's story. But yeah, he's like writing them to Edouard. He was like his best friend. Okay, uh, so yeah, he's I also there for that. some reason. I don't know why Monsignor Edouard is at this party, but he is. So Tyrina asks him if the idea of human consciousness evolving is not like related to some catholic thought and edward's like oh yeah that's the teaching of saint teyard uh he discusses humans evolving towards an omega point a m emergence of all life with the godhead this book and it's weird religion <laughs> right <laughs> that's all that's all i had to say, <laughs> that's to say but this book is like I, I i honestly i don't know what this book has to say about religion like if it's pro or anti i don't think it's either it's just like this is weird right guys humanity is weird <laughs> Except that everything he says, Daniel Simmons, everything he says is like, yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's great. It's like a weird, it's like a, here's a funhouse mirror of humanity where we're just like being held up. Here's all our weird stuff. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just weird. And I'm going to make you acknowledge that humanity is weird and doesn't make much sense. And maybe it shouldn't <laughs> exist. Who knows? Oh, hi, Perian. I kind of love it. <laughs> So Tyrena mentions uh, to Albeda that she's heard of rumors that the Technocore plans to also create some kind of ultimate intelligence, perhaps to evolve their own consciousness in the process. Okay, so the Technocore is so bad at keeping this a secret that just random people parties know? Well, Albedo responds like, no, it's no secret that some of the Technocore have been working to create a new intelligence above our own. That's like a known research project. The part that's not known is like, what no humanity after that's done? <laughs> I mean, that just has to be assumed. <laughs> well, I mean, doesn't it? If you heard that some like higher thinking power above humanity was like, let's make something bigger than us, you'd be like, oh man, humanity's <laughs> gonna get destroyed. <laughs> you <laughs> like, would. But I think the point is the hegemony is so complacent. Like the citizens are so complacent and dependent on the AIs and the core, and they've been allies for so many centuries. Like that's fine. It's probably never gonna happen. I'm sure it won't be a problem creating something bigger than ourselves. Right? Like, what could go wrong? Even the Technocore is a little bit apprehensive about it. Yeah, that's crazy. 
Well, at this point, Severin breaks in and says, hey, I heard a rumor. Didn't you build a perfect replica of old Earth? And that is not public knowledge. And while Uh-oh. nothing shows in his expression, Severin can tell that, that Albedo is very annoyed with that question. Did he ask it on purpose to annoy yeah. him or was he just... Yeah, he, he's like, he just says like he asked, like he surprised himself asking the question, but I think he was trying to get a rise out of Albedo. Uh-huh. Because, again, Severin is technically part of the Technocore in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Albedo dismisses the rumor. He's like, that's crazy talk. And Monsieur Edouard... Nonsense. We definitely don't have a replica of Old Earth. <laughs> yeah, he's like, that'd be crazy. Why, why would we even do that? How would we even do that? And Monsignor Edouard is all, if they could do that, they would already be gods. And Albedo's like, yeah, that's crazy. Totally crazy. <laughs> <laughs> We'd never do that. And so that's all the interesting conversation I have to share from the dinner. So there you go. Oh, thank you. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate that. You're welcome. After dinner, Severin accompanies the CEO and her party, and they forecast to Mars, specifically the Olympus Command School. Where what's-his-face went? Kassad? Kassad. Yeah, well, the, yes, he was part of the Olympus Command School. Excellent. This is surprising, since Mars technically isn't in the web. It's the oldest colony of Earth, and it hasn't been brought into the web formally, and the Zen Gnostics pilgrims who go to the pilgrimage to Mars have to first forecast to the home system station before being transported from Europa or Ganymede. So there's a little backstory for you, Danielle, in case you cared, but you didn't. Thank you. I mean, you're just so full of little trivias and Hyperion things. and I want to sprinkle really... in all these details because you never know when they'll come up again. Yeah, you really give us a full view of this story and its world. <laughs> I really don't. I'm barely scratching the surface. <laughs> I appreciate the effort you're putting in. So Not on... that I remember anything you just said. <laughs> no, not at all. And, and again, it might not come back up, but so much stuff has come back up that I did not expect to that I'm like, I don't know. Maybe any of this could be relevant. Who knows? The smallest detail could be the linchpin of this whole plot. <laughs> and then you're going to have to be back up and be like, okay, I didn't tell you this, but in book one. <laughs> what? I have to go back. Okay, book one is in this. Chapter three. <laughs> they mentioned it briefly again in book two, but I thought we'd just gloss over it and have to bring up this whole backstory. It's going to be a whole thing, Danielle, and I don't really know the patience for that. <laughs> this is one line from this one chapter. The fact that Mars is not formally part of the web might be important, or it might not be. I don't know. Also, the Zen Gnostics might be important or not either. Who knows? Anyway, despite Mars not being officially part of the web, it is the home of the Force, the military <laughs> headquarters, despite all that. And I guess they have Stupid their own name. sneaky forecasters for their high-level purposes. And yes, I realize Force is a goofy name, which is why I love it so much. Force space, force, force. <laughs> and there's always force space or force ground. <laughs> force colon space. Force colon ground. Force colon navy? I don't have a navy. That doesn't make any sense. It was once like force ground force <laughs> well, I, something. I, I had to call like the force ground forces because like, I had no way to describe their <laughs> It was a great sentence. I miss that sentence. Every day I think about that sentence. <laughs> Anyway, Severin is led to a massive and sophisticated briefing room where General Morpurgo, he's back, kicks things off saying, we're losing the struggle in Hyperion system, guys. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm so surprised. I can't believe it. I was really rooting for the humans. <laughs> I know. It's like the fastest turnaround. It's like, hey, guys, we totally got this. Guys, we're losing. We're so screwed. <laughs> we don't got this. <laughs> It's so good. I love it. That's literally how he opens his, his talk. Like, we're losing. So apparently, the best they can hope to do is to, uh, is to fight for a draw, keeping the ousters to about 15 AUs from the Farcaster and Hyperion itself. At worst, they'll need to fall back and evacuate, ceding Hyperion to the ousters. Oh my god. So stupid. I can't believe that we got into a fight with something bigger than us that we 
instigated and now we're losing. <laughs> it's great. I love the hubris so much. But Danielle, if you think that's bad, we'll wait till we get to the rest of this hubris. It's just shocking that we put ourselves into a war. We were going to lose and now we're losing. So one of the senators pipes up going, hey, you know that like knockout blow and easy victory you promised us the other day? Yeah, what happened to that? As Raoul Lashida takes over, telling them that their intelligence with the Astro Swarms was very limited and led to a severe underestimation of their combat abilities. So no duh. <laughs> And thus, maintaining their defensive perimeter has required so many resources they haven't been able to mount an offense. The senator is having none of that. He's like, you assured us you had enough ships. And the CEO steps in here and is all like, okay, we got it wrong. Admiral, how many more ships do you need to turn this around? Thousands. Nishida insists they'll need at least 200 ships to turn this around, which is an astonishing number. It's a third of the entire fleet that they have in the entire hegemony. Mm-hmm. And these ships are apparently not like, oh, a single, like, little dinky tank or something. They are massive battleships that can bankrupt planets to build and have enough firepower to single-handedly destroy planets or, in small groups, destroy stars. So they're, like, real powerful things. And they're like, we need 200 of these guys to defeat the Ousters, man. We're in a real tough spot. So this obviously leads to lots of questions about concentrating their forces on Hyperion and leaving the rest of the hegemony vulnerable. Like, hey, if we take a third of our fleet and put it in this one system, are we just going to be sitting ducks if, you know, someone attacks somewhere else? Yeah, it's just leading that. Yeah. So Nishida assures them that they have been tracking the hawking drive wakes of all the other Astro Swarms. None of them could reach the web in less than 12 years standard time, even if they turned towards the uh, hegemony, which they are not. They're currently flying, like, you know, in random directions, not towards the hegemony. They're really hoping that they understand the uh, full scope of the Ousters. Oh, they're not not even done here with how many bad (laughs) assumptions they are making, Danielle. They also send out probes to verify the swarm size and direction they are traveling and capabilities. Uh, But do you know how often they send out these probes, Danielle? Every six months. Oh, Danielle. Every few years. Oh, it's even worse. <laughs> I know. So there we go. I'm sure nothing's changed in the last few years. <laughs> well, like they mentioned this. So uh, they rely mostly on the Hawking driveways, which apparently are impossible to fake, as, and they are in real time. So they can measure their real time movements using the Hawking drivewakes. And let's point out that a swarm could travel at sublight velocities and not be detected. That's scoffed at because that would take decades or centuries to travel the distances at sublight speeds. And first off, oof, one, assuming that the Alistairs haven't discovered a way to fake hawking drives is a big assumption. It is a big assumption, considering how wrong they've been thus far. I know. Also, I don't know if I'm remembering something like deep in my conscious about the end of this book, or if I'm just thinking this is the obvious problem, but like, what if the Ousers have already been traveling towards you at sublight speeds and are faking it with the Hawking drives? Mm -hmm. So they could be like coordinating their attack to like arrive just as they're drawing all your ships away to Hyperion with their trap. Fingers crossed. I'm sorry. Take them out. <laughs> I know. I think it's really I think it's really hilarious that, hey guys, all our assumptions about the Alistairs were wrong. They're way more powerful than we thought. But we have a whole new set of assumptions that we're sure are correct this time. So <laughs> we <trust> promise. Us. <laughs> Definitely won't be a problem later. We're gonna on. commit way more resources. It's gonna be a way bigger risk, but we're confident our assumptions are right this time, so we're totally cool. And everybody on board is on board. That's the best part. Kind of. 
Gladstone raises concerns about putting all their eggs in one basket, but she's assured they'd have at minimum three years of warning before any swarm could reach them. And if Hyperion Portal was damaged by the ousters trapping the fleet there, they have at least five jump ships that could be used as backups. And further, if the Hyperion somehow seized the portal, first, everyone going through the portal through a forecaster portal is ID'd and tracked. And second, all forecaster traffic from Hyperion is being routed through a secret government planetary system called Mudya. If you don't remember Mudja, Danielle, that was the planet where the original Keith Cybrid first died. And he took Braun there, and they're like, oh, what, this is where yeah, you first yeah, died? Yeah, 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 yeah. Everything's coming back, Danielle. It's all coming back. So, does she believe them? We're not done yet. Okay. <laughs> and so, even though they're rooting all the traffic through Mudja, they have all these automated defenses there that would blast anything that comes through the portal. And even if they did survive they came through the portal, they would just sever the Farcaster links from Mudja to the rest of the web, trapping the ouster fleet there years from the web. However, it's pointed out to Murpurgo and Nishida that that would also trap the entire fleet of the hegemony there also, you know, years right. from the web. And they're like, that's fine, because it's a very low possibility that that's going to happen. We're very confident that's never going to happen, that they're not going to see the portal. I'm sure that will never happen. Yeah. And even so, we have a whole other fleet of, you know, 400 more ships in the web that we can use as backup. Nishida then concludes by saying that the AI Advisory Council predicts, with the added ships, they have a 99.96% chance of victory within a week. Sure. Assuming there's not even any more ouster ships out there. Or also assume that the AI Advisory Council's on the level, because we know that the <laughs> AIs and the humanity are kind of in their own little, like, power struggle right now. That'd be funny if they're just sending them out there, they're like, yep, you totally won't die. Well, that'll wipe out a lot of humanity. That was easy. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, if I was Gladstone, I'd be extra suspicious of any recommendations from the AI Advisory Council. I'd be like, oh, you're telling me we have a 100% chance of winning this? Cool. <laughs> the CEO then asks a junior officer, Commander Lee, what he thinks. And this For poor fun. kid just torpedoes his career. Lee says his instinct is that, is, is that it's a mistake, this overcommitment to Hyperion. It's a mistake to divide one's forces and then put all their eggs in one basket. However, he is quickly dismissed by the top brass as a know-nothing since Lee has no actual space combat experience at all. Then why did they ask him? I have no idea why Gladstone asked him. I think she was just looking for someone who wasn't in the, like, Kool-Aid drinking mindset of the top brass. Like, she wanted somebody who wasn't trained as a space strategist who didn't have that, like, indoctrination and maybe could see things from a different angle. Mm -hmm. But then she ignores him. So, you know, I don't know. Where's Keats Jr. when you need him? <laughs> he's right she there. She's an artist perspective. <laughs> well, he's there watching it all and keeping his mouth shut. <laughs> she should have asked him. In the end, Gladstone's like, yeah, great plan. Take as many ships as you need. Hyperion is way too important to lose. So whatever resources and I you need, take them. And I expect a successful conclusion of this in a week. I worry about her. She's supposedly smart. Well, I think she is very smart, but I think she doesn't actually care about winning the war. Mm -hmm. I also don't think she actually cares about the hegemony. I think she cares about humanity. Yeah, priorities, I, I guess. I think, I mean, and again, I could be percolating something up from the deep depths of my brain about how this book goes, but I think her perspective is the real enemy is the techno core, mm -hmm. and the Ouster is just other humans. So do whatever you want. Go about right, your business. Like she has to do whatever she can to get Hyperion to defeat the whoever it is to, to foil the techno core's plan, regardless of the consequences for the hegemony or whatever. But we still don't know why there's an out why they're fighting the Ousters, right? Yeah, I have no idea. Okay. Well, the fighting the Ousters is an excuse for them to link Hyperion to the web, basically. Right, but 
Is that really the only reason? As far as we know, that's the only reason it's been given so far. Okay. You're fading fast, aren't you? No, I'm not fading. I was just thinking hard about war strategy, Sam. It is not the most interesting of topics. <laughs> I was just surprised you put that I thought the most interesting part was how stupid all the commanders are with their hubris. I mean, it's pretty impressive how stupid they are. <laughs> and I believe that it's all going to come back around and they're all going to die. And that's the best part. That's why I'm sure i got to give you the setup so you can get the payoff. I thought it was funny when we talked about it. It was <laughs> the first time. <laughs> and they, they like how they immediately made off. They're like, well, we were idiots. But now we're going to be bigger idiots. It's and so it's good. it's going to work out. Can't wait to see the resolution on that. I'm sure that they are totally not idiots. <laughs> so after the briefing, Gladstone asks Severin to join her at her garden in the center of Government House. Severin tells her about meeting Melio and Hyperion. And while he may be able to help them understand what's going on with the time tombs, Gladstone states that their predictors insist it's important that the pilgrims be left alone until events play out. So all of her predictions, all her you know, percentages say, hey, nothing can disturb the pilgrims. They must be left to their own devices. Where is she getting this information from again? I mean, I don't know. She has her own advisory committees and her own predicting council stuff, I guess. Her own calculations. Where, where did they come up with the idea of like, send seven pilgrims and see what happens? Again, I, I'm sure, I have no idea, but they, they used some mathematical model that said, hey, if you want a certain outcome, this is the only path that could lead to that outcome or, or the one that could possibly lead to that outcome. Magic. Well, the whole point <laughs> of the AI core is they're predicting the future. And they, remember, they can predict the future for like 200 years. I just like the idea that like somewhere along the prediction path, somebody was like, seven pilgrims to ask for a wish from the great wizard of Shrike, and this will, this is the path you want to take. It will work. Danielle, no one said the universe wasn't stupid. <laughs> just how did that even get into the queue of possible options is what I'm saying. Look, Danielle, the universe is a mysterious and often dumb place. I think it fits right in. <laughs> Just like the idea that that somehow was like one of the balls that came down in the bingo like well, line, you know, and they picked about, it up and they're like, oh, this is the correct path, the highest success rate. Well, basically, we're talking about with the, with the Shrike trying to meet Keats when he's like setting up this whole elaborate plan just so he can get Keats' signature. <laughs> like, it's the same thing. <laughs> anyway, uh, Severin is not at all pleased by her callousness towards the pilgrims and that she prevented them from trying to help Hoyt and won't let Melio uh, try to help Rachel. They end their meeting there. Severin has become disgusted with humanity, thinking of Gulliver and his travels and when he encountered the Winhams and the distaste for humanity he developed after spending time with that nobler horse-like species. <laughs> sure. It's a great book, Gulliver's Travels. Check it out. It's a great book. I like Gulliver's Travels. I have checked it out. <laughs> <laughs> then, why, then why are you dismissing the Winhams? <laughs> I like how he pulls stuff you're going to know. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it's just like Star Trek. <laughs> but also, to be fair, to be fair, Keats is a like 18th, 19th century personality. He would be around the same time as Jonathan Swift. He'd had that like – that'd be something he'd be very familiar with. Probably, yes. Anyway, uh, Severin decides to go to sleep, but he takes a bunch of triseco barbitals to try and prevent himself from dreaming, mostly despite Gladstone. <laughs> Like, screw you. <laughs> That's literally what she says. He says, screw Gladstone, screw the web, screw the war, screw humanity. And they're like, let me just take these. He's like, I'm not going to help humanity out. They're dumb. They don't deserve to be saved. Exactly. That's exactly what he's talking about, the whole Winham's metaphor. He's like, I'm going to win either way. I'm part of the Technocore. <laughs> <laughs> and there we have it, Daniel. End of part one of The Fall of Hyperion.
Oh, thank goodness. We made it, everybody. <laughs> Round of applause. Aren't you excited to see where it goes from here? I am excited. <laughs> Will the d- downfall of humanity be their hubris? News at 10. I mean, duh. <laughs> <laughs> but again, do we really care about the hegemony humanity? Maybe the Alsha humanity is the new humanity. Yeah, I'd be okay with that. Humanity it's like, 2.0. Uh, oh, what's that book? One with the new zombies or new vampire zombies that take over. Uh, you mean the Omega Man? No, I'm Legend. Well, yes, but I am Legend. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the, the book is Omega Man. Same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I am Legend of the movie. Right. I was getting there in my head. I was going back. <laughs> yeah. Just but yeah, like where that, the end it. result is like the thing that took over. Yeah. Except for the other movie with Will Smith where it was dumber. <laughs> yeah, that one. <laughs> they were just they were just they were just vampires. They were actually like sentient. They were just they were just zombie oh, vampires. No, the book's way better. <laughs> yeah, books are way better. I think the old, old movie's also better then. I don't remember. Anyway, uh if you want Danielle to do an episode on the Omega Man <laughs> <laughs> let us know. We can't do that because Sam knows it. I mean I know the plot. I don't think I remember <laughs> reading it. That's the whole point of our podcast, so if you know, know the plot, the, it doesn't work. I know the twist. That's true. Dang. All right. Well, if you want to do it anyway, just for, for, for a guest or something, well, volunteer. Gosh. Oh, Danielle, what's our business plan that comes out of this episode? Oh, great question. Yeah. Maybe we could sell hubris in a bottle. <laughs> Danielle, please. No one would buy that. We have too much of it already. <laughs> Saturated the market. A dehubris? A, de- a dehubridifier. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a winner. All right, everybody. Feel free to donate to our Patreon. And this week, that money is going to a defire. Get rid of the hubris in your life today. I'm so happy with that word. I can't tell you. (laughs) This whole episode, I don't care what the rest of it. That that word right there made everything worth it. For only six payments of nineteen ninety nine, you too can get your dehumidifier. Uh, that's dirt cheap for a dehumidifier. <laughs> Think of all the downfalls you can prevent with a dehumidifier in the right place. So get one today. Get one for your home. Get one for your office. Get one for your car. We have a travel dehumidifier for you. Bring Battery down the road rage. Rechargeable. You're not really as good a driver as you think you are. Oh, no. My hubris is gone. <laughs> Just be sure to empty the hubridifier collector because that excess hubris is going to build up quick. you got to make sure you dispose of it properly. You can't just pour that down the drain. Well, that may be our best idea yet. It's a winner. I think that we'll have to stick with that one. If you want to order a dehubridifier, I love that word, you can do so by contacting us at bookretorts.com. You can also tweet Instagram or Facebook us at bookretorts. And to fund the development of even more sophisticated dehybridifiers, now with a function to reduce your narcissism, <laughs> you, can donate, you can donate on Patreon at patreon.com slash book retorts. Dehybridifier. <laughs> <laughs> I got to patent that real quick. I got to trademark that word. <laughs> well, until next time, uh, I guess I just have to keep your hubris levels in check the old-fashioned way because our product is not in the market yet. 
We're going to do a Kickstarter, though. It's coming to a website near you. (laughs) Yeah, a Kickstarter is basically a hubris generator. (laughs) I know, but we're going to use the hubris to create the dehubridifier. That's very circular. (laughs) Maybe we could get it to run on hubris. Power the dehubridifier with the hubris, it condenses. Oh my god, so smart. Do it. That's basically violating the second law of fluid dynamics or something. One of those laws. (laughs) Is it? Something about, you know, energy from nothing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of energy in hubris. That's true. And human beings are an endless supply of it. If we could do a hubris generator, a hubrenerator, we could power all of humanity. (laughs) Okay, we're done. Cut. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, everybody. Take care. tacos today that was pretty exciting tacos now you're talking tacos yeah we had a rep come in and give us coffee in the morning and tacos in the afternoon were they spooky tacos um i guess depending on how you feel about chorizo sure for it to be spooky <laughs> i don't know it's the spookiest meat on the table is it i mean <laughs> Chorizo does not scream spooky to me, but what do I know? I think it's the easiest to make into the spooky noise, like chorizo. Oh, there it is. All right. Because like al pastor, I don't know. It doesn't sound nearly as. Uh, Al pastor is pretty good. Like imagine hearing al pastor out on the moors at night. (laughs) Pollo. Pollo is not spooky. That's a spooky one.